Khuni, The Crimes of India is a thoroughly researched podcast that uses publicly available documents, reports and books and associated media to provide listeners with a complete picture of the week's case. The following content is often graphic and regularly uncomfortable. Mentions of assault, bodily harm and death may follow. Khuni, The Crimes of India does not condone any actions mentioned in the episode. Minors are advised to exercise caution before proceeding. Thank you. Namaste, Namaskaram, welcome to today's episode of Khuni, The Crimes of India. I'm Sneha, sitting in Hyderabad, and across me on Skype is Aditi, who's in Lucknow. And today is our last episode on Charles Sobraj. Finally. <laughs> Sorry. Did you, see, did you see yesterday's gimmick on the news? I told you we're all living in the circle. Like, how are <laughs> dumping flower petals helping anyone? Instead, could they have not dropped like extra PP sets? I don't know, just saying. Also, <laughs> I started watching this new show on Apple TV called Truth Be Told, which is the story of a podcaster, actually an investigative journalist turned podcaster, who conducts her own investigation into an old case, which had actually launched her into media fame. It has Octavia Spencer and Aaron Paul. Watch it, it's totally nice. Oh, it sounds like that serial lady, Sarah Koenig. Very compelling. I'll check it out. Okay, so anyway, without further ado, let's just dive into the episode. Here we go. So at the end of the last episode, we saw that Charles, Marie and Ajay were traveling from Bangkok to Paris, stopping midway in Malaysia and Geneva. And how at the last minute, Marie noticed that Ajay had mysteriously failed to show up to the airport. Charles had not given any explanation for Ajay's disappearance, but Marie had been too scared to even ask. To this day, no one knows what happened to Ajay. In the meantime, largely due to the efforts of Nippenberg, Nadine and Remy Gyers and the US DEA, Bangkok Post printed pictures of five known murder victims and announced that, quote, a web of murder, robbery, forced druggings had been uncovered by the Bangkok Post in an extensive investigation, unquote. There was a picture of Charles and Marie Andre, captioned, Gautier and Leclerc. In Paris, Charles was either blissfully unaware or completely nonchalant about the investigation into his many crimes. In fact, he, they did not know that they had made front-page headlines all over Asia. Charles and Marie behaved like a young couple on a romantic getaway in Paris, taking long strolls down the streets, patronizing the assorted cafes and shops. Look, I could call this romantic and be all awe and stuff, but we all know that's not the case here. No. And besides the romance... Charles was also actively hustling in gems. He had managed to convince a Thai gems dealer, Tommy, to come along with him to Paris. Tommy had brought his family's collection of rubies and sapphires. 
the two men had spent Uh, many weeks in Paris in plush offices of Glass Vendôme and Champs Elysees, displaying their exquisite wares and taking orders from the most famous jewelers of Paris. And as if his life in Paris had not been hectic enough, he found out that Chantal was now back in Paris looking after her sick mother. So he gave her a visit and begged to see Usha. He said, "Oh, Chantal, I was a fool to lose you." I mean. <laughs> I'm dramatizing, but you get the picture. <laughs> She blushed and asked him not to interfere in her new life. I like this new Chantal. Yeah, way to stand up for herself. He behaved like a gentleman, the perfect gentleman, gracious and charming. And as he said goodbye and hurried out to the car, a brand new white Citroen C twenty two hundred. She watched him drive away and felt sad. Chantal knew that he was on the run once again. Charles also introduced Marie to Felix. Remember the kind prison volunteer who had helped Charles out in Paris when he had been imprisoned all those years ago. Turns out Charles had offered some gems to Felix as a gift to Felix's mother. Dude, this guy's audacity <laughs> never fails to piss me off. I mean I don't know if it is audacity I think it's plain and simple cockiness the benefit of being a psychopath is that you never suffer from self doubt and sure that has been the downfall of many a serial killer including eventually sobraj himself but it also allows them to evade capture for a long long time so here's a small example of that one of charles's clients happened to be a french prefect a member of local government and he had built a great rapport with him they had met in pa- singapore and in europe charles had visited him several times they had bonded over chopin and the prefect's rare book collection he had ordered thousands of dollars worth of necklaces and bracelets from charles how rich are these local government officials in france <laughs> that they can yeah. afford rare books and precious gems i know right anyway One day when Charles and Marie visited his house the prefect's demeanor was off he seemed agitated on edge and Charles could sense it he and Marie made their way into the living room filled with antiques the previously friendly man was frowning now as he leaned across his desk and said Mr Gautier I must demand an explanation from you now Charles's mind was racing he kept checking off things that could possibly have gone wrong yeah was it the jewels no charles had been flexible about the payments so what it, could it be so he said that if quote if you think i'm going to cheat you like he began i mean he knew it couldn't have been about the gems i mean yet this was the most innocent response in his head charles was calm and collected as usual He was already planning an escape plan in case the situation took a turn for the worse. So the man showed Charles an article co- titled "The Web of Death," detailing the murders of Western travelers in Bangkok. This was the earlier Bangkok Post article that we had referred to. Now Charles was very casual, and he nonchalantly brushed it off. He assured the man that the article was just libel planted by his competitors in Bangkok. and the man oh. <laughs> fucking believed him okay how the fuck did he become a prefect god knows 
there is i there is no i think give, having read the entire story we can safely conclude that there is no dirt of dumb government officials involved in this entire story right yeah totally like totally yeah. you will you will see as we proceed with the episode you will see he in fact told charles that he had already checked with interpol that morning and he found that they did not have any files on any elaine gotier clever charles very clever okay now think about what an unconvincing lie this is imagine you read an article about a new friend detailing how they are involved in extortion murder robbery etc and then they come to you and tell you it's all a lie forget about it how would you react would you be convinced even if you give this person the benefit of doubt you would keep them at arm's length you would definitely rethink any business relationship you have with them hell yes <laughs> yeah so one wonders what happened with this prefect well there are three possibilities a the man was a moron b the police had not done their due diligence their paperwork was not in order they were slow on investigation after all this was in 1970s and unfortunately even though they had information on elaine gotier they were unable to assimilate it and file it properly today they would have only needed to type his name in a database and see charles was just that manipulative he was just that good even though we have the benefit of hindsight and today we have a better understanding of how a psychopath operates i'm willing to bet a lot of us would get easily conned as well and that's what happened but charles's luck was running out soon i would pay big money big money to someone <laughs> to make a movie which shows charles in today's scenario with today's <laughs> bookings today's police today's fbi today's interpol yeah. anyway <laughs> now the remember the massive report which hermann nippenberg had delivered to all the foreign embassies well this had its own repercussions beyond the headlines in the asian press when the high commissioner of canada realized that one of his nationals marie andre leclerc was involved in the murder case he notified his country's police early in may investigators knocked on the door of a modest house in levy quebec and questioned marie andre's family no one realized it at that time but the royal canadian mounted police left the house with the key to the riddle of alan gotier's true identity On May 12, 1976, the Interpol office in Ottawa sent a cable informing all member countries including Paris and Bangkok that in an emergency Leclerc's parents were instructed to contact Madame Sobraj at Villa La Roche giving the address of Noyce House in Marseille where Charles was now staying. Oh god so he gave them his real name and address really see this is why cockiness is dangerous okay the daily headlines in the bangkok post and the previous in- inquiry from paris interpol asking for information about the death of charmanie karu had finally aroused the attention of colonel somphol the head of bangkok interpol yes finally people are waking up So he took statements from Nippenberg, Remy and Nadine, collecting them from collecting from them boxes of evidence found at Kanit house. 
he interviewed survivors of charles's earlier drug muggings in india including the real uric damor one of the frenchmen found drugged in a crushed van in southern india in fact we don't even know when this happened like there are so many things that have happened this is just one more thing that just came out and okay. yet there was still no warrant for charles's arrest on charges of murder on may 19th a day when giles carrier visited a police station in kathmandu and fi- formally identified photographs of a shard and mutilated body as his brother loron carrier and a day when mrs emma nolton teresa's grandmother wrote an other wrote one of her desperate and unanswered letters to the us embassy in bangkok asking for a date and circumstances of her granddaughter's death paris interpol cabled the following message to bangkok discrete verification of address villa la roche shows that van long noi ex concubine of hachan sobraj is living there noi had two children by sobraj one of them a son is recorded in our documents under diverse identities including charles sobraj this hostile individual is known for escaping and is under indictment in france it appears that charles sobraj took the identity of gotier alan this is considered an urgent and grave affair in france very next day bangkok interpol issued an international warrant for arrest of alan gotier marie andre leclerc and ajay choudhary for conspiring to murder theresa nolton enke bentania kaki mk and vitali hakim fucking finally and he should thank his stars they did not have dna testing back then because his dna would have been over every single piece of evidence yep and the orders read if found inform immediately extradition will be re- requested one week later the bodies of teresa nolton and vitali hakim were exhumed from the desolate cemetery near pataya and unwound from their sheets of plastic as leon hakim who had flown in from istanbul to thailand watched the charred body of his son being moved its head fell off oh my god later later leon was reportedly seen weeping in his hotel foyer heartbroken by the attitude of official indifference which had kept him ignorant of his son's death for more than 6 months and in the meantime charles and marie fled to india with marie andre charles had left france about 2 weeks ago in the brand new sithoy that he'd bought it could do 200 kilometers per hour the perfect getaway car for the job he had now planned but he was short of cash it was that old demon of his gambling he had lost 200000 at the rouen casino while marie andre looked on in misery fun fact remember his mother noi so charles got in touch with his mother and went to visit her even though they fought in the beginning largely because he got his half brother andre jailed that'll do it <laughs> <laughs> they reconciled she even joined him on that disastrous gambling trip so now this woman is a piece of work remember how in senegal charles used to steal sweets and give them to his siblings she used to share them with the kids but never not once 
did she question how the kids got those sweets? And as they were leaving Villa de Roche to set off on their amazing drive to India, Noe had said, quote, and this is, this is a gem. You're almost 33 now, Charles. Be careful. Christ died when he was 33. And Charles replied, I'm smarter than Christ and I will die an old man. (laughs) Yeah. Only a mother is delusional enough to compare her lying, cheating, murderous, psychopath of a son with Jesus Christ. Look, dude, till now he's not been wrong. He's still alive. Yeah. He had much more money, of course, he would later claim, but that was all in Thailand. And in bank accounts under false names and the appropriate documents were with some other party. But in India, money would not be a problem for too long. He, as usual, had the perfect setup. And in a few more days, he'd be rolling in cash again. Charles went back to his old haunt again. Remember Deepthi's house of drinks? Charles, now alias Daniel, had grown a beard and a thin moustache and was wearing a monogrammed business shirt and a neatly pressed trouser. He now recruited a Belgian, Jean Huygens, who moved from Goa to Bombay to seek work as a film extra. What? <laughs> Who seeks work as film extra? Shouldn't you aspire to more? Oh my god. (laughs) Dude, again, 70s. (laughs) Okay. Now, Daniel told him that he had a job for him and he needed a few passports and a girl to help him in his quote-unquote gem business. Jean knew the perfect girl for the job. There was an English girl he knew who scraped a living on the streets of Bombay. A girl without scruples. What an apt description of Barbara. There are so many things wrong with that paragraph. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. And who the fuck says I need a girl with few passports and then gets them? I mean, this is insane. Charles, dude. Charles. (laughs) So Jean had been hired with golden promises of big money. And initially, Jean had been eager to indulge Charles. He got him Barbara. But Jean did not fully grasp the meaning of Jem's business until he spent some time with Charles. Later, Jean would find out that when Daniel said Jem's business, he literally meant cleaning out all the big jewellery shops in Delhi and Agra. Huygens was instructed to smarten himself up and pretend to be a couple with one of the other female accomplices, an Australian girl with long brown hair and freckles and a friendly smile. This was Mary Ellen Ethor. Remember his daring escape in Greece? She was a nurse who had helped him there. Driving back from Paris to India in the white Seathoy, Charles had visited Mary again in Karachi. She had joined in the car and its occupants and they had sped towards India while Charles planned a gems robbery he had intended to be the biggest and the best of his career. So Mary and John Huygens set together to visit the jewellery shops of Delhi posing as customers and appraising the value of the stock. In order to infuse confidence into the mind of the victim dweller, Huygens later told police, I was to pretend to be a foreign diplomat shopping with my wife. 
Huygens saw the same things happen in India that had happened in Bangkok. Daniel proceeded to drug and steal from tourists. And of course, he held all their passports and money with him for safekeeping. One day, Jean saw the opportunity, stole his bag from Charles and fled. And this infuriated Charles. Because the Belgian, who they all called, quote, toothless Dracula for some reason, had also taken all their passports and money. And Charles needed to earn money back ASAP. He was planning to run away to South America. But just like the Charles we have seen over and over again over the past few weeks, he got back up, dusted himself off, and cleaned off a group of Dutch tourists in Agra. Just like that. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, Charles would do anything to make money. And by anything, we mean anything. Literally, nothing is ever off limits when it comes to self-preservation with Charles. To give you a small example, let's take the case of Luke Solomon. This was a French traveller and Charles had made him his mark. So to gain access to his passport and money, Charles needed to gain his trust. And how did he do it, you ask? By making Barbara sleep with him. Yeah. Wow. When they said no scruples, they really meant no scruples. I don't know. I don't know how much you can blame Barbara in this situation. She feels like a victim to me so far. So along with murder, extortion, abduction, theft, now you can also add pimping to Charles's ever-expanding, ever-impressive resume. He drugged Luke to steal his money and passport. The passport he realized was useless because it had been stamped too many times. Luke, on the other hand, never regained consciousness from being drugged, by the way. He died. Life was expendable to Charles. Remember how we see in all crime movies when the criminal is busy planning his next big heist, full of confidence, we also see a montage of a hard-working policeman obsessed with the crime and the criminal? Well, this is that montage. A police officer is a citizen in uniform. Read the sign on the wall in the office of New Delhi's crime branch. And every citizen is a police officer without a uniform. Cheesy. Anyway. Sitting in a dilapidated office behind an ink-stained wooden desk was a man who liked to think of himself as the Sherlock Holmes of Asia. Deputy Superintendent Narendra Nath to be. He was excited. There had been a breakthrough in the Sobraj case. For 30 years, Tuli had been solving crimes for New Delhi's police force. Some of them quite celebrated. But now, if he could cap his career with the arrest of Charles Sobraj, that would be great. What a show. Tuli still remembered the fuss caused by Sobraj's robbery at the Ashoka five years ago. Questions had been asked about it in Parliament. Charles had kept an American flamenco dancer in her hotel for three days while he tried to drill through the floor to the jewellery shop below. He was a slimy bugger. They had spotted him at the airport, but he vanished. Finally, the Bombay squad caught him outside the Taj and he was brought to Delhi in chains. But Charles outsmarted them again. He had faked an attack of appendicitis and escaped from the hospital after the operation. 
This time, though, Thuli was determined to get him. There was a tip-off from Interpol that Sobraj had entered India. One of his accomplices had been phoning her family from Delhi. And even before this news, Thuli guessed Charles might be around. Previously, three young French travellers had been found drugged at the YMCA in Delhi and all their belongings were stolen by a man calling himself Daniel. Then came the break. On 2nd July, a Belgian, Jean Huygens, had returned to the Canadian embassy saying that he was in fear of his life and enclosing pictures of a man calling himself Daniel. It looked like Sobraj. So one morning, not long after Huygens had stolen the handbag from Charles, Thule travelled to Anjuna Beach in Goa disguised as a tourist. In all ways, it was a strange meeting. Thule wore a loud sports shirt, trying to appear at home in the hippie colony and sipping from a coconut, listening to the scared ravings of the haggard dropout. Apparently, Huygens had taken an interview. Apparently, around 20 years before, Huygens had taken a detective training course at a night school in Brussels. In July 1976, Charles had ingratiated himself with a group of French engineering postgraduates who were on a holiday tour. The students quickly fell for Charles's magnetism and knowledge of the area and its history, much to the annoyance of the group's official tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His knowledge of the gem trade also fascinated them. And when two of the girls showed them the sapphires they had brought, bought, he in fact told them that they had been cheated and accompanied them to a shop in Agra and ordered its owner to refund the girls' money. Very helpful. Of course. Yeah. And we don't even know if he probably set up the whole thing, you know, just to gain their trust. He could have done that also. Possible. Now, yeah. So in all his conversations with the students, he impressed upon them the dangers of Indian drinking water, quick, quietly slipping laxative in some of their drinks to induce diarrhea. He was playing the long con. He wanted them to be annoyed by India and Indians in general so they would trust him, a fellow Frenchman, instead of the natives. Once they trusted him enough, he planned his old MO of drugging them so that they would lose consciousness and escaping with their money and passports. On July 5th, 1976, the students were all assembled in the lobby of their hotel, ready to start sightseeing in the city. Charles gave them all a pill saying that it will prevent dysentery from food and water. And a lot of the students took it without a second thought. But this time, things would not go according to Charles's plan. He had drastically miscalculated the dosage. The pills worked too well, too quickly, and the students began to writhe around the floor of the lobby in agony, vomiting and passing out. When someone worked out that the only people who were getting sick were those who had taken their friends' preventative medicine and noticed that Charles was attempting to quietly slip out of the motel, three students wrestled him to the ground and immediately <laughs> called the police. So Tuli reached the hotel with his men and Charles kept up his calm demeanour. Even between the two policemen and a whole group of angry French tourists, the man was smiling. And he was very polite with Tuli. 
He calmly explained that it was a case of innocent mix-up with the medicines, that it wasn't his fault, he got the medicines in good faith from a doctor and the doctor probably messed up and he insisted that his name was Daniel. Tole was not fooled though. For him, this was going to be a career-defining moment. He was very cautious and which was great for everyone involved, I think. The Interpol's photo showed a clean-shaven man but this one was bearded and not to be too dramatic here, but Tuli was fixated on his eyes. His dark, predatory eyes. I mean, they unnerved him. He was also thinking of all the burnt and mutilated bodies. And once Charles was handcuffed, Tuli loosened the suspect's belt and lifted his shirt. Five years ago, this man had escaped from a hospital in Delhi after an appendix operation. He had been clutching the wound as they were arresting him. There was the appendix car. At long last, Charles Sobraj, the serpent, had finally been captured. And here too, Sobraj had made sure to protect himself. Just, beca- just before he was arrested, Charles took the packet of sapphires and rubies from his bag and while pretending to scratch an itchy toe, hid them inside his socks. And this was going to serve him well in the dark world of Tihar jail. Wow. Firstly, in the, you know, the whole mix-up of incompetent police forces all over the world. I can't <laughs> believe Indian police caught this guy. Yeah. <laughs> but good on, good on Indian police. Like, you go Delhi police. I can't believe I'm saying this, but anyway. Now, the serpent had been captured and unlike past situations, he was not going to find it easy to wriggle out of this one. His small clan was quickly rounded up and arrested and it didn't take much pressure for Barbara and Mary Ellen to spill everything they knew and in particular the murder of Jean-Luc Solomon. Charles himself refused to crack throughout the two weeks of intense police interrogation, sticking to his story that he was an important French merchant. But the evidence against him was coming in thick and fast from all over the world, as a string of aliases began to be uncovered. Thailand and Nepal were eager to speak to Charles about the killings committed in their countries, and he had been exiled from France. He was also wanted in Greece, Turkey and Afghanistan for the crimes and prison breaks he had orchestrated in their countries. And finally, India charged Charles and his three female cohorts with the murder of Solomon, locking the accused within the hellish and rodent-infested walls of Delhi's Tihar. While death may have been a preferable option for Marie and the two women, Barbara and Mary Ellen, who incidentally had both attempted suicide during the years before their trials. Charles was seemingly not bothered by the atrocious, unsanitary conditions of Tihar. Having smuggled more than 70 carats of precious gems in his body cavities, he knew he would be able to buy his way into power and relative comfort within the prison. Now, due to the notoriously clogged Indian legal system during the 70s, where martial law was applied by Indira Gandhi, it would take about almost two years from the time of their arrest 
before Charles and his three co-accused would make it to trial. Now the trial itself, by all reports that we've read, a great piece of theatre, with Charles hiring and firing lawyers at will, Mary Ellen Ether recanting her statement that she'd witnessed Charles drugging Jean-Louis Solomon, and even the arrival of younger brother Andre, who had been released early from his Turkish prison and travelled to Delhi in an unsuccessful bid to help Charles escape. Andre, dude, get help. And then (laughs) the trial began. It was a media circus. There was media from all over the world thronging the courtrooms of Tees Hazari in Delhi. And Charles, with his pretty Firang ladies, attracted all the attention. Ah, Tees Hazari. I've spent so many days interning there during college. And you never realize that while you're assisting a lawyer with some drab property dispute... A nightmarish serial murderer may be undergoing trial at the same time on the same property. Oh my god. Yeah, dude. Fuck, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Wow. Like Charles Manson before him and Ted Bundy at around the same time as him, Sobraj eventually decided to defend himself. And the judge was not impressed with all his courtroom drama. And eventually found him guilty of drugging with intent to rob causing hurt to commit robbery and culpable homicide not amounting to murder. But there were also occasional highlights, like in the cross-examination of Barbara Cheryl Smith. Remember Barbara without scruples? Apparently, (laughs) one of the lawyers said, I put it to you that you are a hot and sexy girl. Wow. Wild. <laughs> yeah, man. And meanwhile, this girl just stood very boredly in baggy green trousers, sipping a soda. And you know all about Mandrax? The barrister said. Wait, wait. You're allowed sodas in cross-examinations? Again? 70s. Wild, wild <laughs> times. <laughs> and as someone, like, I, I actually cross-examined people, but only in civil cases. No, dude, you're not allowed soda. You can get water, but that's about it. But back then, every rule was flouted. What is the harm of letting someone drink soda? And the opposite opposition lawyer raised an objection and it was promptly overruled. Of course, she knows what Mandrax is. She would be a disgrace to her tribe if she didn't. Is it not true, Miss Smith? That young people in Western countries use them as aphrodisiacs? I would have (laughs) paid big money to watch this. (laughs) Oh my God. I I can imagine like people just being shocked (laughs) by things going on like this. I mean, I can imagine like in a city where women are usually invisible... Charles's girlfriends and accomplices added to his aura of glamour and power. Eventually, Murray was not found guilty in the manslaughter of Solomon, but would go on to serve some prison time for her role in the poisoning of the French students. She received mercy parole from Tihar when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, returned home to Canada and died in the April of 1984. And still, even then... 
professing her love for Charles to the very end. <laughs> say something, Aditi. Say something. I know you're itching to say it. Oh, God. I don't know. This is sick. Yeah. Now, the prosecution obviously argued very strongly for death penalty because it was clear that Sobraj was a pathological killer who would murder again if given the chance. And people were understandably stunned when the judge sentenced him to a mere seven years in Tihar prison for the murder of Jean-Luc Solomon with additional five years for his attempt to rob the French students. Rumors circulated wildly. Charles had managed to buy off the judge, although he still had the specter of a warrant from Thailand that was good for 20 years, which meant that Charles would be deported as soon as he walked out of his Tihar stint and most likely be executed for the string of murders he had committed over there. Rather than orchestrate another prison break, Charles decided to bide his time, virtually running Tihar prison and wanting for very little. He literally ruled the place like he was a fucking king. So if you remember Black Warren, the confessions of a Tihar jailer, uh, we covered this in a shorty a few episodes ago. Sunil Gupta, who was the prison officer in Tihar, narrated a story where Charles Sobraj had helped him secure his appointment letter. I mean, literally handed him the fucking letter on his first day. Can you imagine? That's the kind of power and influence this guy wielded in Tihar. According to Sunil Gupta, the man was never without a tie and a jacket, even in prison. The man had impeccable dressing sense. I mean, there is a scene in 30 Rock, if you watch it, where Liz Lemon barges into Jack Donaghy's office all frazzled and she finds him getting dressed into a tux. Uh, She asks him where he has to go. He says nowhere. And she asks him why he's getting it. You know, why is he wearing a tux? And he says, it's after six, Lemon. What am I, a farmer? (laughs) So Charles (laughs) is the Jack Donaghy of the RJ. (laughs) (laughs) he goes on to write that Charles was never locked up in a cell and could mostly be found sitting in the administrative office unlike other inmates there was no lock-in or lock-out time for him he even made many friends in Tehar one of whom was David Hall and remember his name he's important so Indian Express at that time carried a story in September 1981 which said that Tihar jail is ruled by Charles Sobraj. A PUCL report, this is the People's Union for Civil Liberties, they published a report that came out that year, uh, which gave further details. It said that inside the jail, Sobraj and his friends set up their own dens from where they ran their business, dealing in narcotics and selling drugs and liquor. Sobraj and his friends would beat up almost anybody who would dare to put up any resistance. And the condition of the jail deteriorated to the extent that docile prisoners became target of abuse by the hardened criminals. Okay, The superintendent and his cronies who had managed to keep higher officers in the administration in good humor looked the other way when criminals went on rampage inside. So Charles successfully petitioned the High Court for removal of shackles from his leg. These he replaced with a tape recorder strapped to his thigh and then lulled jail officers to chat about their illegal activities. Everything from canteen skimming to petty theft and supplying opium. He took the tape to the superintendent, put it on his, put it on his desk, and said, quote, 
I'm a criminal, you're a criminal, so we should cooperate. Yeah, he was that <laughs> blunt. It was that easy because the man agreed. And from then on, it was all about wine, women and song with Sobraj, reputed to receive 40% commission on all illegal takings. A fee was also extracted whenever Sobraj referred new prisoners to one of his battery of lawyers. As a disgruntled guard was to later testify, Sobraj and Marie-Ande Leclerc had sex twice a week in the superintendent's office. He even enjoyed conjugal visits from visiting fans. So this is not technically conjugal visits. He had his own fair share of sympathetic female fans, ranging from divorcees from all over the world, to college girls, to psych majors from UCLA who wanted to marry him, uh, and even his lawyer named Sneh Sengar. She was one of the lawyers who defended him in Tees Hazari. Sneha, thoughts? Yuck. Firstly, okay. <laughs> in my tiny law career, I interacted with my fair share of clients. But no, dude. No, you don't fall in love with... Uh, and also the name. Couldn't it have been any other name? <laughs> okay. But then again, uh, this would not last. So Charles knew that the minute he finished his sentence in Tihar, he would be extradited to Thailand and there he would be executed by the firing squad. So he had to come up with a plan. As of confirming his fears, a Delhi magistrate had recently ruled that there was a prima facie case against him in Thailand. Charles had told a reporter once, it's hell over there. Thailand is well known for its black laws and its violation of human rights. If I go there, I'll be shot with machine guns made in Germany. So Sobraj appealed the ruling in High Court. In March 1986, we can show what? the above paragraph and teach people what is irony. Charles Sobraj <laughs> yeah. complaining about human rights. Human rights, yes. I guess even prisoners have their human rights. I mean, we can't deny them. Anyway. So in March 1986, David Hall, remember from earlier, he had been released previously to come to Tihar with a backseat full of birthday feast. Apples, chocolates, custard puddings, local delicacies and five kilos of grapes. The guards accepted the offer of fruit. Charles's soirees were legendary. And remember, we're using the word soirees while Charles is in prison just to emphasize his influence. And everyone was excited for his pre-birthday celebration. But of course, they were all drugged and lost consciousness. And Charles escaped from Tehar. Hall was aided in his plan by Sneh Sengar, Charles's lawyer, who he also slept with. Jesus Christ. All these guards were dolts. I mean, being a criminal, I get but you are dealing with a man who is known to drug his victims. I mean, that is literally his thing. You would think there would be one smart guard around, but no. This guy knew how to live the high life and he didn't even bother to change his ways in prison. Listen, I still can't figure out what about him made all those women drop their panties. I can still understand the ones he met. He manipulated them into thinking that they were in love with him. And then obviously sort of almost in a very Manson-esque way. Like, 
the whole find a blind girl, seduce her, make her fall in love with you, and then make her commit crimes for you. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why these women would write to him with proposals of marriage. It just can't be the case of ooh, I love a bad boy. <laughs> You know uh, Richard Chase, the serial killer in United States. So he had some female fans in uh, prison as well. And I remember reading somewhere, or maybe I heard it in some true crime podcast, that for a lot of women, it's two things. First of all, there is the adrenaline rush of dating a dangerous man. There's a weird thrill in knowing that this man is horrible in general, but still nice to you. The second thing is that even though they know that they're dating this dangerous man, at the same time. they know that they're at a safe distance from him you know because this man is behind bars so you can meet him you can write to him you can have sex with him or even marry him in certain cases but at the end of the day he's not your problem there is an escape so maybe that is why these women were attracted to him that or the fact that a lot of these women were you know they had deep rooted psychiatric issues that's the simpler explanation i guess <laughs> Did someone like that write uh, Bundy's biography, or am I mixing up serial killers? No, no. Uh, Bundy's biography was written by uh, a woman who worked with him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the one who worked with him in that uh, uh, the grief counseling place. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the story. So Charles had drugged the prison guards and escaped from Tihar Jail. This escape, however, lasted only twenty-three days. The end seemed like a climax of a cheaply produced thriller movie. You know, a cozy, dimly lit bar overflowing with beer and bonhomie, attractive waitresses in gaily coloured skirts swaying through the crowds, a bride and a bridegroom dancing to the beat of the banjo, the main protagonists in the drama sit- sitting a few feet away from each other. There were two main characters: the hero and the villain. The villain was the criminal on the run, blissfully unaware that his reprieve was coming to an end, and the hero was an ace sleuth with his men nearby, sipping drinks, trying to blend into the local ambiance. So Charles was known to be a man with expensive tastes and a liking for women and fine food. These were the very attributes which terminated Sobraj's reprieve exactly twenty-three days after he, aided by his accomplice David Hall, a small-time drug peddler. made his dramatically arrogant escape from Delhi's top security Tihar jail his flight from uh, pursuing lawmen ended somewhat inevitably at the one place where he would feel the most at home the hippie haven of goa the okokiero bar and restaurant is housed in one of the classic porched houses in goa and boasts fine cuisine it also boasts a fine telephone exchange better than the one at the central telephone office in goa at the time and the police backtracking sobraj's erratic trail had been tipped off that he would most certainly try to use the bar's phone to call abroad they had visited the bar the previous day senior inspector madhukar zende he was the man who ultimately called uh, caught sobraj he said that i was sitting at a table where i could watch both the telephone booth and the gate and in their vigil they struck gold they had been patiently waiting for several hours confident that sobraj would show up the bombay police making inquiries at the post and telegraph office in punjab about possible telegrams addressed to sobraj had discovered that okokwero 
was where most foreign tourists went to make overseas telephone calls. Just a month earlier, a Punjab magazine had carried an article on the illegal arrangement between an unnamed restaurant and the telephone department for clearing overseas calls quickly. And everyone in Goa knew which restaurant the article was referring to. A Goa policeman said that you could get an overseas call through in two minutes from Oko Cuero. So Gaines Viegas was the owner of the restaurant and he said that Sobraj arrived at about 9.45pm on the night of April 6th and sat in the veranda with a hall. Sobraj offered a Hayward's beer, poured half a glass and just then the Bombay police pounced on him. So though Viegas maintains that he thought the police team were tourists, a Goa police official said that the uh, owner had already been introduced to the police posse earlier. In any event, Zende and his team had left little to chance. As Sobraj was speaking to Hall, Zende, using the driver as a shield, grabbed Sobraj and other policemen sitting at the tables flanking the one that Sobraj was using. He grabbed the bag containing his pistol and Charles realized that he was stuck in Tihar right in time for his 43rd birthday. Happy birthday, motherfucker! Anyway... (laughs) Sobrak had subsequently claimed that he actually gave himself up. When the police introduced him before a magistrate two days after his arrest, he said that he would not have been so stupid as to sit in a public bar and could have easily fled the country if he wanted to. But Delhi Police Commissioner Ved Marwa dismissed this claim. Don't you believe it? In that case, why, why was he carrying a gun? Though Marwa has a point, it does serve Charles's purpose to remain in, incarcerated in an Indian prison. The alternative would be extradition to Thailand, where he faced execution. Having broken out of jail, Sobraj now faced a fresh sentence in India of maybe around seven years. It was, in retrospect, a brilliant but audacious plan, which added years to his Tihar sentence and ensured that as the time passed, the charges awaiting him in other countries would fade away as governments changed hands, evidence disappeared and witnesses died. Without the aid of any poison, Sobraj finally walked out of Tihar prison on February 17, 1997 at the age of 52. Kept in custody until Indian authorities could find a country that would accept him, Charles eventually returned to France, settling in the Chinese quarter of Paris where he enjoyed something of a celebrity status. He charged reporters for interviews. Apparently, a minimum of USD 5,000 for an hour's interview. Oh my God! (laughs) And I've read so many articles where he took the journalists to a hotel in his own car to like one of these shady hotels and gave them an interview where, of course, he used to deny everything. He said he never murdered anyone. And for some strange reason, in September 2003, he went to Nepal. He claims to have gone there for humanitarian reasons. A journalist saw him riding a motorbike in Kathmandu. And he was promptly arrested at the famous Casino Royale in Kathmandu and charged with entering Nepal on a fake passport back in 1975. Of course, the real reason for his arrest was to question him over the deaths of Connie Jo Bronzich and Laurent Carrier. Again, 
Charles vigorously denied the charges, claiming he was not even in the country at that time, arguing that the body of Carrier had never been positively identified. While District Court Judge Beer Singh Mahara originally ordered his release in October 2003, authorities later rearrested him on murder charges. Charles was tried and found guilty of two murders in the summer of 2004 and finally sentenced to prison. There was another failed escape in November 2004. He apparently utilized a laptop computer and a cell phone to obtain a chemical compound that he planned to drug the prison guards with. This has been the last known act of defiance from Charles Sobraj. In late 2007, news media reported that Sobraj's lawyer had appealed to the then French president Nicolas Sarkozy for intervention with Nepal. In 2008, Sobraj announced his engagement to a Nepali woman, Nihita Biswas, who, get this, was his lawyer's daughter. Great ad pedo to his ever-growing <laughs> list of accomplishments. Nihita yeah. is 44 years younger than him and apparently it was love at first sight. Oh man, now I'm convinced, okay? This guy is literally the Vietnamese French version of Manson. I am pretty sure that this Charles's end game was also living in some piece of land in either Bangkok or rural France with his weird ass family of women from all over the world. Like I can totally picture him going to parties in Bangkok or Paris with a string of young women on his sides. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm kind of disturbed at how detailed my hypothesis was. I'm so glad that this is the last episode. <laughs> yeah. So on July uh, 7, 2008, uh, through a press release, his fiance Nihita and him claimed that he was actually never convicted of murder by any court and asked the media to not to refer to him to him as a serial killer. How polite. It was claimed that Sobraj married his fiance on 9th October 2008 in jail on Bada Dashmi, which is a Nepalese festival. On the following day, Nepali's jail authorities dismissed the claim of his marriage. They said that Nihita and her family had been allowed to conduct only a tikka ceremony along with the relatives of hundreds of other prisoners. I mean, this is part of the celebration in the festival. So they further claimed that it was not a wedding, but this was just it was part of the ongoing uh, Dashain festival, when elders put vermilion marks on the foreheads of those younger to them to signify their blessings. Nihita and her mother denied these and maintained that they got married. In July 2010, the Supreme Court of Nepal postponed the verdict on an appeal filed by Sobraj against a district court's verdict sentencing him to life imprisonment for the murder of American backpacker Connie Jo Bronzich in 1975. Sobraj had appealed against the district court's verdict in 2006. calling it unfair and accusing the judges of racism while handing out the sentence what uh, yeah <laughs> like i said anything for self preservation so the supreme court upheld this uh, verdict of life sentence for the murder of connie jo connie jo bronzich and in, in addition awarded another year plus 2000 rupees fine for entering nepal illegally 
The seizure of all Sobraj's properties was also ordered by court. Sobraj's quote-unquote wife, Mihita, and mother-in-law, Shakuntala Thapa, her mother, who was a lawyer, expressed dissatisfaction with the verdict. And Thapa claimed that Sobraj had been denied justice and that judiciary is corrupt. They were charged and sent to judicial custody for contempt of court for these remarks. <laughs> On 18 September 2014, Sobraj was convicted in Bhaktpur District Court of the murder of Canadian tourist Laurent Carrier. In 2018, Sobraj was in critical condition. He had been operated on multiple times. He has received several open-heart surgeries and is scheduled for more. In his book, Inside the Heart of the Bikini Killer, which was written by Charles's heart surgeon, Ramesh Koirala, it seems that Charles is kind of terrified for his surgeries. It seems like he's a broken man, finally. Most recently, Charles was in news as his name was on the list of prisoners that are slated to be released due to old age. Nepal has a law that states that a prison sentence of any senior citizen can be waived off. But uh, this is subject to government's decision. I mean, it, it's the government's discretion whether or not to waive the sentence. And secondly, it depends on whether the person in question is a threat to society. The list in which his name has to be approved by the Home Ministry and the file is currently pending with them. I think we can all safely conclude that Charles is definitely a threat to society. He is not going to change his ways. I have spent considerable amount of the last three weeks going over this fellow's life and lies. I don't buy his Hong Kong gang made me do this theory for a second. Like, I feel that he needs a certain amount of control and somehow I can't for the life of me reconcile the fact that he ran all of these huge operations and still bow down to a mafia type scenario. He's just too independent to be working for a mafioso. I mean, he literally thought that he was invincible. Like, for example, um, Iceman, Richard Kuklinski was someone who worked for the mafia, but... And he was a contract killer and his only job was to kill people. He got his orders and carried them out. Look, he also had other criminal activities, but he was not all over the place in the NYC social scene with a bunch of attractive looking men and women. And in my opinion, Charles attracted too much attention to be an undercover assassin for a drug cartel. If Charles was, as he claimed, to be someone who the mob employed to take out an amateur drug peddlers, then why was Charles trying to recruit a family? Why the whole drug smuggling? Why the whole gem smuggling con? Weren't his employers paying him enough? What? And here's my take. I think he made up the whole Hong Kong scenario in his head. And as Nippenberg believed, killed those who were against either smuggling for him or becoming his drug mules. He made up the whole drug cartel as a possible future defense. To him, none of his victims were innocent. He claimed that he was a businessman and not a criminal. And his victims were nothing but Western degenerates who were wasting their money with drugs and sex. Look, Marie Andre was a medical secretary. Teresa was a student whose trip to Kathmandu would count as a credit to her degree. Vitali Hakim and Sharmanya Karu were planning to become clean after Hakim finished his last big job. Enke Bintanya was a professor in the University of Amsterdam. Cornelia Emker saved up her salary for months so she could go on a trip of a lifetime. 
actually charles they were not degenerates that's just how young adults back in the 60s and 70s were they had all worked hard and saved money to travel they all had jobs and lives back home charles preyed on something that was a rite of passage for millions of young people they literally just wanted to explore the world and chill not very different from many of us today and this is why this case makes me so angry charles manipulated everyone right from when he was young to i suppose even now he has a comfortable cell with ac and tv and internet in a nepalese prison i mean i'm pretty sure that's not standard issue charles conned forged and killed his way through his life simply because he wanted to make enough money to go back to the lifestyle he had with hachand which according to him was wrongfully taken from him he's 76 now but i don't think he's done with his scheming if he's released which most probably he will be i am pretty sure he will still do something that will attract the world's attention to him and there you have it that is my take on charles gurumukh sobraj <laughs> I think he's just a psychopath. He would do anything for money and control. He hated his stepfather for not being rich. He used his wife as collateral in a gambling bet. He subjected his daughter to a life of crime. He basically enslaved Marie in a foreign country for money. He killed for more money. He basically disposed of Ajay when he was of no use to Charles, like one would discard a used tissue. When captured and imprisoned, he bribed and bent the system to suit his needs. He used his lawyer to escape. He cries about human rights when he has to be shipped to Thailand. He's self-serving to the core. I mean, he's a classic psychopath with no remorse, no empathy. We can all marvel at his great escapes and elaborate heists, but the thing is, anybody can get ahead in life if they stop caring for the consequences of their actions. Literally anybody. Maybe not for too long, but still just enough. So that's it for today, folks. Let us know what you thought of this series or about our podcast in general. Would you like us to do more deep dives like this in the future, where we fuck up our heads so you can get a thorough look into the life and times of a horrible serial killer? We even made art. You can see it on our Insta story, <laughs> and we never make art. Anyway, give us a five star rating whenever you listen to us. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're updated every time we upload a new episode. Follow us on our socials and drop us a line or two on our socials if you want. It's always nice to hear from you people. And again, no trolling, please. Be nice to us. Have a great week and stay safe. Bye.